0: So good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Thank you all for showing up. Uh, Today's episode is going to be about uh, the power of reinvested earnings. Um, So we are going to draw uh, heavily on uh, Buffett's letters here, in particular, his 2019 letter, where he had an entire section um, which he titled The Power of Reinvested Earnings, where um, he took a book that was written by this guy called uh, uh, Ed- Edward Lawrence Smith, I think. And uh, so um, the, this Edward Smith, uh, he, when, when he wrote this book, um, he sort of um, stumbled upon um, a very important fact, which is that when companies... Uh, take part of their earnings and reinvest them and are able to compound part of their earnings, that can add a lot of value to the owners of the company. So uh, if you had two companies, say A and B, uh, suppose A earns, say, $10 per share and A distributes its entire $10 per share to uh, its owners every year. Whereas B, uh, what B does is it earns also the same $10 per share initially. But it distributes only $5 of that $10 per share uh, to its owners. The other $5, it retains in its own operations and it reinvests them into new projects and initiatives and so on. And it earns a return on all these reinvested dollars. So, for example, if it earned a 20% return on reinvested dollars, uh, it takes this $5, uh, this ex- extra $5 and reinvest it. And the very next year, its earnings would have grown by $1 because it earns a 20% return and 20% of $5 is $1. So, if it earned $10 uh, this year, the next year it will earn $11 because it has $5 more to invest in its operations. And it does the same thing. Of that $11, again, let's say it distributes uh, uh, half of half of that $11 back to owners. So $5.50 would go back to owners. And uh, the other $5.50 would be reinvested back into the operations of the business. And businesses that are able to do this for a very long time, uh, who are able to take a portion of their earnings and reinvest that portion at reasonably good rates of return businesses that are able to do this they can add a lot of value to shareholders uh, over a long period of time so what, what exactly is value to shareholders well there are two ways of looking at it one is the market value of the business uh, which is what whatever uh, the market cap of the business is that's the value of uh, to shareholders the second way of looking at it is uh, intrinsic value of the business So intrinsic value is the present value of all the future cash flows. So if you, say, buy uh, shares of uh, Home Depot or something like that today, uh, what is the intrinsic value that you'll be getting from those shares? It's basically if you buy those shares and hold them forever. You never sell those shares. You buy them and hold them forever. Uh, So between now and forever, all the dividends that Home Depot is going to pay you, On those shares, Uh, you take those dividends and then you discount them to the present. So if you're using, say, a 12 percent discount rate or something like that, uh, whatever dividend that Home Depot is going to pay you next year, you discount that by 12 percent. So you divide that by one point one two. And then whatever dividend Home Depot is going to pay you two years from now, you take that dividend and you discount that by one point one two squared and so on. Uh, You you divide that by 1.12 squared and and so on. And you add up all these discounted dividends. Uh, That is the intrinsic value of those Home Depot shares to you. So you pay a certain amount of money to buy those Home Depot shares today. And over a long period of time, Home Depot is going to uh, pay you dividends on those shares over time. And then you take the discounted value of all these dividends that you're going to get out of those shares And that is the intrinsic value of uh, those Home Depot shares today. Um, And businesses that are able to reinvest earnings, they can actually grow this intrinsic value over time. So if you calculate the intrinsic value, suppose Home Depot is able to reinvest earnings at a good rate of return. Then if you calculate this intrinsic value of Home Depot today, Uh, versus if you calculate the intrinsic value of the same Home Depot shares, say five years from now, the value five years from now will be higher than the value now uh, because Home Depot is able to compound uh, because of this effect of compounding retained earnings that also has the effect of compounding intrinsic value. And if you believe that over a long period of time, the market prices uh, of Home Depot shares will follow intrinsic value so if you believe that um, you know as as ben graham said if you believe that in in the short run the market may be a voting machine but in the long run it's a weighing machine so the value of the shares will more or less uh converge to intrinsic value or will hover around the intrinsic value over a long period of time if you believe that then yes uh, the the share uh, the, the market value of Uh, Home Depot will also keep going up over time if it is able to do this reinvestment. So that is the power of retained earnings. Um, Essentially, uh, companies that can retain and reinvest those earnings um, into good projects, good initiatives that earn a high return on those retained earnings, they will be able to compound their value better and they will be able to deliver uh, better returns for their owners over time. So this this was uh, 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 Edward Smith's insight when he wrote that book. And that insight was picked up uh, by John Maynard Keynes, the, the famous economist. And uh, Keynes also wrote about this. And, uh, and then it was picked up by Buffett and several others. And now it is a, a fairly well understood uh, that reinvestment of retained earnings Uh, has potential to tremendously increase the value of companies and so uh, if you just look at the stock market if you if you take companies that are able to reinvest earnings and grow uh, earnings quickly so whenever a company is able to reinvest earnings at high rates of return it will be able to grow its earnings over time at a fast rate as well and uh, so companies that have uh, good growth prospects Uh, good returns on capital and things like that, they trade for higher multiples uh, in the stock market because they are perceived as higher quality uh, companies. Uh, So this sort of uh, thing is well understood in the markets. Uh, And as we are investors participating in the markets, it's important for us also to understand the theory behind why uh, $1 of earnings at Company A and $1 of earnings at Company B may be two entirely different things. So Company A, uh, for the same $1 of earnings, it may be valued at at a PE of 10, whereas Company B may be valued at a PE of 25. Why is that? Well, it's because some companies can reinvest those earnings, grow those earnings quickly. Some companies cannot. Some companies can earn a high return on capital. Some companies cannot. So for increasing uh, B's earnings by $1, it may require $5 of additional capital. Uh, to increase A's uh, earnings by $1, it may require $20 of capital. So there's a big difference between the two. And because of all these characteristics, uh, different companies have different kinds of multiples in, in the market. And it is important for us to sort of understand uh, what these drivers of value are. And uh, so why why do some companies... Uh, have higher multiples than others uh, why do some companies wh- why does the market like some companies more than others and if we have a differentiated view so if we think a particular company can retain and reinvest earnings at a high rate but the market doesn't quite fully appreciate that then uh, that can be a very attractive opportunity for us if we understand these core concepts so that is the broad purpose of this podcast to talk about um, the the effect of compounding retained earnings at uh, companies and how it increases intrinsic value over time. Uh, so if um, I I'll stop here and uh, start taking questions. Um, so the the first question is from Casey.
1: Yeah, hi Ten K. Um, <clears throat> you obviously are very familiar with uh, with Berkshire Hathaway and. Obviously, they're known, or uh, Warren Buffett's known for for never paying out a dividend. Um, right. Can you speak to um, Berkshire's ability to reinvest their earnings? What what that has been over the years? If it's declining or improving, or if it's staying staying the same? Uh, right, exactly.
0: Uh, so the first thing I must say is that yes, Berkshire uh, doesn't pay dividends and has not paid dividends for a very long time, but eventually. Uh, that will have to change. So if you take a company that never pays a dividend, ever, uh, so it um, every company has to die at some point, and uh, throughout its life, if a company never pays a dividend to its shareholders, then the intrinsic value of that company is exactly $0, right? If If you take a bunch of owners of the company, they've invested a certain amount of capital into the company, uh, and they never get back their capital because the company never pays them a dividend. And so uh, the company may make a lot of money um, and reinvest it and so on. But if it ultimately never pays a single dividend and it uh, eventually dies without getting the shareholders anything, the intrinsic value of that uh, that, that whole uh, stretch of time, that whole business uh, is exactly zero. Uh, I don't think the intrinsic value of Berkshire is zero um, because I believe that if someone buys and holds Berkshire today, um, they they have two ways of realizing value out of Berkshire. So one is you just buy and hold Berkshire and Berkshire will eventually pay you a dividend. Uh, The second way is uh, whenever Berkshire buys back shares, um, you, you can sell a portion of your shares to Berkshire. Or uh, when uh, you don't have to sell it to Berkshire, even if Berkshire doesn't buy back shares, uh, you can sell a portion of your shares in the market. And over a long period of time, if Berkshire is compounding its intrinsic value uh, at a a, a decent rate, say 10% per year or whatever, um, over a long period of time, the market price of the shares will also compound at at 10% per year or something like that if you believe that market prices follow intrinsic value, and, and I do believe that. Um, so, uh, to answer the other question, um, what about Berkshire's return on retained earnings? Now, that is a somewhat more complicated question. So, if you if you take any company in general, not not just Berkshire, uh, there are only a few things uh, that it can do with its earnings. So if a company earns uh, say one, $1, there are only a certain number of things that the company can do with that $1. So one one thing to do, the simplest thing, is to give back that $1 to shareholders. And um, uh, of course the shareholders will have to pay a tax on it and, and so on. So that that's a dividend. Uh, and of course we know Berkshire doesn't do dividends. Uh, the second thing that the company can do with that $1 is reinvest it back into its own operations. And Berkshire has some, comp- uh, Berkshire has some uh, businesses within itself where it can reinvest this capital. And there are some businesses uh, within itself where it cannot reinvest a whole lot of capital. So for example, uh, Ber- Berkshire earns billions and billions of dollars uh, every year and if if you take a business like Sea Scandies, for example, it's a great business. It uh, it gives Berkshire a lot of money every year, but Berkshire can't really go and reinvest billions of dollars into opening new Sea Scandies um, because that business just cannot take that much capital and earn a good return on it. But if you take, for example, Berkshire's energy operations, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, which which used to be called Mid American Energy that business can take enormous amounts of capital. So, I mean, they, they are essentially rebuilding the whole electric grid in various parts of the U.S. And that requires an enormous amount of capital and uh, you, they can earn a regulated return on that capital. So any, any capital that they invest into the, uh, into the utilities business, the, the uh, electricity generation business, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, uh, they can probably earn something like a 10% return on that capital that they are investing. So it's not ac scandis. C-sandis. can probably earn something like 25% return on its uh, invested capital, but c cannot take a huge amount of capital. Uh, this business, the regulated utilities business, it can probably earn only 10% on capital because. Uh, Uh, It's it's a regulated business. The regulators uh, sort of uh, set limits on uh, how high a price they can charge for electricity and things like that. So they can earn only a limited uh, return, uh, which is something of the order of 10% on their capital. Uh, But it can take huge amounts of capital. Uh, So Berkshire uh, is thankfully involved in some businesses that, that can act as a way to compound their retained earnings. So that's the second thing that businesses can do with their capital. So the first thing was a dividend. The second thing is reinvesting back into their own operations. Uh, the third thing is to make acquisitions. And uh, Berkshire makes two kinds of acquisitions. Uh, wh- one kind of acquisition is just go out and buy a business outright, um, like how, how Berkshire bought Seas Candies um, or um m- more recently how how it went and bought uh, uh, uh BNSF and and things like that so you you go out and you buy an entire business uh, that that's possible and uh, you know warren buffett is famous for saying that he has this uh, elephant gun where he's looking for very large businesses to buy uh, but over time that is becoming more and more difficult for berkshire uh, simply because uh, they have enormous amounts of capital and they can't buy small businesses. So if if you have a, say, a small coffee shop that's making uh, whatever, 200K per year or something, even if it earns a high return on capital, Berkshire probably is not going to be buying that business from you uh, simply because they, they, they want businesses where they can, um, uh, they can spend billions of dollars acquiring them uh, and your business is just too small. Uh, to make any difference to berkshire so uh, acquiring businesses uh, in their entirety that is becoming harder and harder for berkshire but when it is possible so if there is a widespread uh, market market drawdown or something like that um, and private businesses are uh, available at uh, very attractive prices berkshire may swoop in to buy some of these businesses in size Uh, So that is one thing they can do. The second way they can acquire businesses is to just go and buy common shares in the stock market. So, for example, Berkshire recently bought uh, tons and tons of uh, Apple shares. And uh, so now they own about 6% of Apple or something like that, I believe. Uh, Now, part of it is because they they bought uh, the shares. Part of it is because uh, both Berkshire uh, and Apple are doing repurchases. Uh, And uh, whenever Apple does a repurchase, Berkshire's ownership of Apple increases. Um, So they they can do that that sort of thing. Uh, But again, the same uh, sort of considerations apply to buying marketable securities as well, uh, simply because uh, Berkshire is just so huge. Uh, It cannot go and buy a $100 million company. um, Or or if it does that, it won't make a very big difference. Uh, So... uh, Buffett is really looking for acquisitions that, uh, uh, or uh, to buy buy shares of companies uh, whose market cap is at least uh, in the tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, so that that they have that constraint, and it's becoming uh, difficult to find large companies that are also attractively priced today. Um, so that that is one thing they can do. Uh, with with earnings so so far we've covered uh, dividends uh, reinvesting into your own operations acquisitions so those are three things you can do with earnings uh, the fourth thing you can do with earnings is just pile pile the cash up on the balance sheet uh, so you, you don't have to do anything with the earnings right now just let the cash accumulate on the balance sheet but there is an opportunity cost to carrying cash Today, the interest rate that you can get on cash is uh, something like close to zero percent, and Berkshire has a um, has a large amount of cash, and that cash is earning something like zero percent today. Uh, the hope is that uh, sooner or later, some opportunity will come up to reinvest uh, this cash, and um, if, if such an opportunity comes. Uh, we, we can be reasonably sure that uh, Buffett and Munger will sort of pounce on that opportunity, uh, but until then, uh, th- this cash is just going to lie on the books, earning zero percent, which is not not a great outcome for uh, Berkshire's owners. Uh, the other thing is that Warren Buffett has said that uh, he is going to keep always a certain minimum amount of cash on the balance sheet, um, and that is just for uh, uh, risk. Uh, uh, risk mitigation purposes. So if you have a large amount of cash on your balance sheet at all times, you can weather all kinds of storms, which uh, you will find it difficult to do if suddenly the, the credit markets uh, seize up or something like that. And uh, so uh, Buffett has made this point that they are always going to keep an enormous amount of cash on their balance sheet, far more than uh, what what they might need in any given year. Uh, and I believe what Buffett says about that is, uh, um, so in in 99 years out of 100, uh, that cash is going to earn a subpar return. Uh, but in the hundredth year, uh, when uh, w- when there is uh, panic uh, in the markets, that cash could save Berkshire. And um, so um uh, the, the the phrase he likes to use is um, th- they like to sleep well in all hundred years um, so um in in 99 years they may earn a subpar return on that cash uh but in the hundredth year when everyone else is uh suffering uh berkshire will not suffer because of this um but yes that that cash could be a drag on returns depending on how much uh how much uh, how much cash there is and what uh, what the prevailing interest rates are on short term treasuries and things like that, where the cash is invested. Uh, so that that is the fourth thing. Just let uh, cash uh, pile up on the balance sheet. Um, the fifth thing that you can do with cash, uh, with with earnings, is to repurchase your own shares. And uh, we know that at least of the last quarter, uh, Warren Buffett has been repurchasing like. Um, uh, 6 6 billion or 5 5 billion to 6 billion dollars worth of uh, Berkshire shares uh, every quarter and uh, it's a little difficult for him to repurchase more than that because uh, Berkshire is not a very actively traded stock it's a fairly thinly traded uh, stock uh, particularly the A shares are fairly thinly traded the B shares are a little bit more traded and uh, uh, buffett's uh, repurchasing of those shares he doesn't want uh, the repurchasing itself to sort of drive up the price. Uh, he uh, he wants he wants to be able to repurchase shares at an attractive price, but he doesn't want to make up uh, a big share of the daily volume, daily trading volume of Berkshire or something like that. So uh, so his his repurchases will uh, have to be slow, uh, but I think uh, he's very very enthusiastic about repurchasing shares at. Um, well maybe not at these prices uh, because berkshire has uh, recently run up in the in the market but definitely uh, at the 280 $290, sure. three, 300 dollar per share per b share range he he was fairly enthusiastic about purchasing those shares and he he always insists on a very high margin of safety for continuing shareholders so if he's buying shares at uh, 300 uh, 300 dollars a share he probably doesn't think the intrinsic value is 305 or something like that. He, he believes that the intrinsic value is 400 or something like that. Only only then uh, that that margin of safety he requires for, for repurchasing shares. And, and so uh, he, he's been doing quite a bit of that. But now that uh, Berkshire shares have gone up a little bit in value, uh, we have to wait for next quarter to see if uh, he, he's uh, continued doing repurchases at these levels. Or uh, has he sort of stepped off the gas uh, a little bit? So broadly speaking, these are all the things that you can do with uh, with earnings. Of course, you can also pay down debt and things like that. Um, but with, with Berkshire, uh, I, I don't think the debt is a major problem. It's, it's, uh, they have an enormous amount of cash and uh, really that um, uh, they can't find ways of using it. Uh, Although they have issued some debt recently because debt is available at uh, ridiculously cheap prices, especially for somebody like Berkshire. So they've issued a lot of uh, Japanese denominated debt and so on. And uh, in their utilities business, uh, they have a certain amount of debt uh, that is simply to um, sort of comply with the regulators and and so on. Regulators like to see a certain amount of debt in utility operations. They don't want all the capital to be uh, equity capital. Uh, uh, so, uh, with a certain amount of debt you can sort of uh, leverage uh, uh, you can use leverage to sort of amplify your returns on equity and what that does in a utility operation is uh, you can charge uh, a lower price to your uh, customers and still you can make the same return if you use the power of leverage and so uh, regulators are interested in uh, ensuring that uh, citizens can buy electricity at uh, at reasonably low prices and uh, so they they like to see a certain amount of debt, not not excessive debt, but a certain amount of debt in utility companies. Um, and uh, so Berkshire has a lot of debt in their utility operations, and and so on. Uh, so broadly speaking, uh, this this is uh, these are all the things a company can do with with the cash it has on its uh, balance sheet, with with the with the cash it gets out of its earnings, and. Uh, Berkshire has some problems allocating its cash because uh, it, it can only uh, do large acquisitions and uh, b- big things with the elephant gun. Uh, but overall, uh, I'm reasonably happy with the way they are able to reinvest money, especially in their utility operations and railroads and other capital intensive areas. Um, I'm not so thrilled with the hundreds of billions of dollars of cash on the on the balance sheet, uh, if they can be deployed uh, somewhere, if, if they can be used to buy some uh, productive asset or make an acquisition or something like that, uh, it'll be good. Uh, but again, uh, Buffett is very, very disciplined about what kinds of things he will buy. He has to find something that is large, that is within his circle of competence, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so overall, I'm willing to trust in Buffett and Munger's uh, sort of judgment on uh, when, when when to use that cash to make Acquisitions, um, and I'm I'm very happy about the, the repurchases of uh, shares that uh, Buffett has been doing uh, in the in the last uh, two years or so, uh, because I, I believe that the shares were undervalued, and um, uh, since since uh, Buffett is repurchasing shares, uh, I think he he must also believe that the shares are somewhat undervalued, uh, so so I'm I'm happy about that. Uh, so that that's that answer the question. I'm sorry, it was a very long answer to your question.
1: No, it was a great answer. Thank you. Just a few follow-up questions. Um, Sure. So the return on invested capital, if you look at Berkshire's five-year average, uh, if you just take a glance, for instance, on Y charts, it says it's 9%. And I'm I'm trying to make sure I understand your previous comment about the stock market being a voting machine versus a weighing machine. So if Berkshire, on average, over a long period of time, their return on invested capital is 9%, is that do I understand you when you're you're to say that if that's what they're returning on their investments, that's what we should expect. That that should that, should, that is what a shareholder should also expect to to get as a return um, on their investment in Berkshire as well. Is, is that is that correct? Uh,
0: so this this is a great question. Um, it really depends in Berkshire's case on how this return on invested capital is calculated. Uh, so as I see it. Berkshire has these uh, two big uh, sort of uh, silos. So one silo is uh, their operating businesses and those operating businesses earn, uh, each operating business has its own uh, capital and each operating business earns a certain amount on that capital. Uh, The second thing is the portfolio. Now, um, uh, por- portfolio of marketable securities, Apple and Bank of America and American uh, Express and, and so on. Um, now, uh, this portfolio, it uh, it gives Berkshire a certain amount of dividends each year. And uh, that is included in the operating earnings of uh, Berkshire. Uh, but at the same time, uh, these companies are retaining their earnings. Uh, uh, retaining a portion of their earnings, and they are not sending uh, those retained earnings to Berkshire. Uh, so, uh, I think Ber- Berkshire share, at least in the 2019 letter, uh, Warren Buffett had this uh, um, uh, had had this little table uh, saying, "Okay, this is uh, Berkshire's share of uh, the earnings of various uh, companies, and uh, how, how much of uh, Berkshire's earnings are being." Berkshire share of these companies earnings, how much of that is being uh, returned to Berkshire and how much of it is uh, uh, being reinvested uh, back into these own uh, these companies operations? how much of it is retained by these companies and used for reinvestments and uh, repurchases and, and things like that? Um, and uh, Buffett sort of uh, uh, Buffett's tabulation is that if you take just the top 10 companies in the portfolio, uh, he calculated that uh, the dividends that Berkshire received from these companies totaled about four billion dollars in 2019. Uh, but the retained earnings that totaled about eight billion dollars. So uh, if you if you take uh, Berkshire's share of the earnings as uh, just the four billion from dividends, if you just take that for your return on uh, capital calculation, uh, then you will get an artificially low figure. Um, or you could take, uh, this 12 billion, uh, uh, so bo- both the, the dividends and the retained earnings put together, the look through earnings of, uh, Berkshire's portfolio companies. If you take 12 billion and use, uh, that to calculate the return on capital, um, then of course you'll get a higher return on capital, but I would say that that is more representative. So I don't know how white charts did its calculation, uh, the third thing is, Whitecharts could have just done its calculation based on the market price of the shares. So Berkshire has a portfolio. If uh, let, let's say uh, the portfolio is worth uh, something like uh, three fifty billion or four hundred billion dollars, and uh, that portfolio, let's say, it increased by fifty billion dollars, then uh, Whitecharts may have taken that fifty billion and uh, counted that as earnings of Berkshire. And taken that and divided by the return on uh, divided by the amount of capital. Now that is not perfectly representative because, uh, as we know, uh, in in short periods of time like one year, uh, the market can um, uh, do all all kinds of things. So some some of Berkshire shares, um, the the rise in value may be much much higher than the rise in intrinsic value. Uh, in some some of the shares, uh, the uh, the underlying companies may be doing very well, but the shares may not reflect that. Uh, so there are all these different things. So they they may or may not uh, th- this uh, y- using the rise and value of the portfolio as earnings uh, that may or may not be a good idea. And if YCharts is doing that for calculating return on capital, uh, I I would not really trust that return on capital number. A, a far better way to do that is to uh, return is to calculate return on capital by taking the look through earnings of the portfolio, and then uh, taking the earnings of Berkshire's operating businesses and adding the two up that will give you a uh, sort of the uh, a representative figure. Do you know, figure, uh, do you know
1: what the, that number is? Uh,
0: well, one can sort of estimate that number. Um, and uh, I, I believe it is of the order of uh, uh, 12% or something like that, but I am not hundred uh, percent sure about this number. Um, if you want to read more about uh, various kinds of adjustments uh, that, that are needed. So, so this is a very simplistic number you, you have to make a, several kinds of adjustments to it. If you want to read about uh, more, more about this, I suggest you read uh, Chris Bloomstrand's uh, annual letters. So every year, Chris Bloomstrand writes an annual letter. And in that annual letter, there is a big section about uh, Berkshire because uh, Berkshire is one of his uh, portfolio companies. Uh, now, I should warn you that this annual letter, uh, Chris calls it a letter, but it's actually hundreds of pages long. So it's, it's, it's like a book. Uh, so, so so every year uh, chris comes out and writes a book about berkshire and if uh, you, you if you read this book uh this sort of you you will um, gain a better appreciation for uh, what are all the uh, ways you have to take the reported earnings and adjust them uh, to account for various uh, berkshire
1: peculiarities sure um, I, i've read his uh, i've read p- pieces of his annual letter not the entire thing to your point how long it is right. But if you take a much simpler business, something that's not Berkshire Hathaway, a business that has a market cap of 500 million and it, it only has one operating business and has no investments and it just reinvests into its 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 number one operating business and its return right. on uh, invested capital is uh, straight 10%. That's what that's to your comment about voting and waiting. Your your return over the long run will match the return on invested capital. Is that is that a true statement? Uh
0: that is a true statement, but only if all the capital is being reinvested. So um, if, if a business can earn, say, a, a 10% return on capital, but it is investing, it's reinvesting only, say, half its earnings at that particular rate, uh, then your, your return uh, will, will not be 10%. Um, so so uh, your, your return uh, will depend on two things. One is uh, the, the, the dividend yield that you're getting when you buy the stock. Uh, So, uh, well, so when when you say a business's return is 10% uh, and let's say it's reinvesting half of its earnings uh, back into itself at 10%, the the important question is, what is it doing with the other half? If it is giving it to you as a dividend, then your return from uh, buying the stock will uh, depend on those dividends that you're getting over time, uh, as well as, Uh, the return that the business is earning on the money that it retains. So it will depend on two things. Um, Whereas if the business is um, reinvesting 100% of its earnings, it's not giving you any dividend. It's taking all Mm -hmm. its earnings and reinvesting them back at 10%. Uh, Then if if you buy and hold the business for a very long time, over a long period of time, your return will also match that 10%. Uh, But the return will not be in the form of dividends. It will be in the form of uh, uh, market price appreciation of the stock because you're not getting any dividends from this company. Uh, So over a long period of time, if if the market price um, sort of uh, 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 grows with earnings and so on, uh, matches the growth in earnings and uh, 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 cash flows of the company, and if they are growing at 10%, then over a long period of time, you will also make
1: 10%. Got it. And the last question, real quick. Uh, you said uh, Berkshire's trade, it's, uh, it's, it's shares are thinly traded. Is there a threshold that uh, is a broad, uh, uh, p- when people say something's thinly traded, like is there a threshold of how many millions of shares are traded uh, in proportion to how many can be traded? I know that's a general term. I'm just curious if there's an actual number that, that people say that once it's over this amount, it's not thinly traded anymore. Uh,
0: that, that's a great question. Um, I don't know what the threshold is, but uh, if if I were to sort of calculate such a number for myself to uh, figure out how much liquidity there is in a in a stock,
2: um,
0: I, I would just take uh, what is the total number of shares uh, that are outstanding. Uh-huh. Of course, if you take the total number of shares outstanding, some some portion of the shares may not may not be tradable. They may be held by Uh, These very long term uh, institutions or they may be held by uh, Buffett's own uh, foundation or uh, things like that. So those shares are not really tradable. So uh, you might want to back those out of the total share count Mm -hmm. and and you will get a pool of uh, tradable shares. These are the uh, uh, shares that can be traded in any any given day. Uh, And then you look at how many shares are actually traded. Uh, you you can get that volume information from uh, from white charts or uh, ticker or any any one of these uh, services will probably give you the volume that is traded, and then uh, so you look at of all the shares that could be traded, what percentage is traded uh, on any given day or something like that. Uh, that that might give you uh, sort of an idea of uh, yeah, well, how much liquidity there is in the stock. But I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm not sure of uh, any particular uh, threshold or anything like that, uh, except that uh, if you just take Berkshires, uh, I- if you calculate this percentage for Berkshire, um, and uh, if you compare this percentage to other large companies, um, say say Coca-Cola or uh, Apple or Home Depot or some, some, something like that, um, then um, it turns out that uh, the percentage for Berkshire, it, uh, at least the A shares, uh, tends to be a lot lower than uh, other large companies of of similar size. Uh, so, so that that's uh, that that's why we say uh, it's thinly traded. It's kind of relative to the rest of the uh, to to other large companies.
1: Sure. Okay. Thank you. I'll let the other guys uh, jump in. Thanks. Thank you. Sure.
0: Absolutely. So the the next uh, uh, caller is uh, Raj. Hello, Raj. Uh, I think you're on mute. I'm on mute. Uh, oh, no, oh, now you're. Now I can hear you.
3: Yeah. Uh, Again, yeah, I was speaking on mute. So, uh, so, so, my question is <clears throat> very basic to the the principle of compounding that we covered last week, I think. So, and 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 mapping that to uh, this week's thread uh, on Twitter. So, the question I have is <clears throat> the way you explain. Let's say a company is only giving dividends. And, uh, you know, um, in that case, is the, is the intrinsic, intrinsic value compounding? I think the answer is no, I guess. But I would like to hear from you if, if my understanding is correct. That's number one question. Okay. Number two is, there are two aspects. Like one is the legacy capital and the, and the new capital. So so basically, the way I understood legacy capital is, is what you need to invest to continue your ongoing um, rate of return or whatever uh, is, 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 is you know your current rate of return so if you want to continue with that that's legacy capital right now now if i uh, in case of legacy capital again there is a compounding but when you do uh, the reinvestment capital uh, the new capital then the compounding actually is much Faster is that? I mean, I'm 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 trying to understand the mapping between uh, legacy, new uh, to the compounding effect. So, it would help if you can explain that. Sure, sure. Uh, so, the the first question. So, if if a company uh,
0: just earns a certain amount of money, and then it gives out 100% of those earnings uh, as dividends each year and uh, those dividends sort of remain constant earnings remain constant and uh, the, the earnings never grow or any uh, the dividends also never grow with time uh, then you're essentially when you buy the company you're buying an annuity uh, so if if uh, if you get say 10 dollars per share as as dividend and you buy 100 shares you're going to be getting 1000 dollars per year from this company And that $1,000 is never going to change. You're always going to be getting $1,000 per year every single year going forward. Uh, So if you take the intrinsic value, which is the discounted present value of all these $1,000, that is never going to change. You can calculate the intrinsic value today, uh, or you can calculate the intrinsic value five years from now or 10 years from now. It's just going to be the discounted present value of uh, all these $1,000 payments, right? And uh, so uh, no matter when you calculate this intrinsic value, as long as you use the same discount rate, uh, this intrinsic value is not going to increase or decrease at all. It's going to remain the same. So it's not, uh, it's not this, this particular company uh, is not really compounding intrinsic value. That, that's the first question. Uh, the second question uh, is about uh, legacy capital versus new capital. Um, So for one uh, to take one example, uh, Buffett had uh, had invested into this company called uh, Kraft Heinz. Right. And at the time he made that investment or or maybe one year after he made the investment, he commented that this business employs about seven billion dollars of tangible capital. And it earns about six billion dollars pre-tax on that tangible capital. So there's $7 billion invested into the company and it earns say uh, $6 billion on this $7 billion of capital. Now that $7 billion is legacy capital that is already been invested into the company uh, by, uh, by a combination of uh, the owners putting up money and uh, Kraft Heinz itself retaining earnings uh, through the sales of ketchup or whatever. So, This $7 billion is what is in the company uh, today. And uh, that uh, is legacy capital at the company. Now, tomorrow, if Kraft Heinz decides that it wants to reinvest more money into the company, so let's say it wants to reinvest another $7 billion into the company, that would be new capital. So uh, now you have to ask yourself, Okay, on the first seven billion dollars, Kraft Heinz is earning six billion dollars pre-tax. If Kraft Heinz were to invest another seven billion dollars into its business, can it earn another six billion on that new seven billion or not? Uh, so, for for a business like Kraft Heinz, which is uh, fairly mature and fairly capital efficient and and all that, it's really really hard to earn another six billion on another 7 billion. So if they were to invest another 7 billion, they might earn 1 billion on it or something like that, but they are earning 6 billion on that extra 7 billion. That is going to be very, very hard. So they have very good returns on legacy capital, but if you were to add new capital into the business, they you will not get those same high returns. So in this particular case, the return on new capital uh, is actually smaller than the return on uh, legacy capital uh, but if a company is uh, in uh, it's it's discovering some it's it's inventing some new product or something like that and that product is going to be uh, uh, very very successful let's say uh, then uh, today the company may be earning 10% on its legacy capital but if it contributes new capital into developing this new product which is going to be very very successful then the money that it earns on this new capital may be much higher uh, than wh- whatever 10% returns on the existing capital. So um, that's the difference between the return on legacy capital and the return on new capital. Uh, so return on legacy capital is typically called ROIC, return on invested capital. And this return on new capital is typically called ROIIC, return on incremental invested capital. And uh, for, for many mature businesses, ROIIC tends to be much smaller than ROIC. Uh, but for some uh, new businesses that are developing new lines um, of, of business and so on, uh, ROIIC can be higher than ROIC. Uh, does, does that answer the question?
3: Yeah, yeah, perfect. Thanks a lot. Okay, sure. So then
0: the next uh, question. Comes from uh, Vinod.
2: Hi, Tinke. Can Hello. you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for hosting this again. Um, I have two questions. Uh, so, this concept of uh, retained earnings, um, there various examples that you provided. believe it's more of a uh, Fairly matured businesses who is having predictable uh, earnings and also competitive advantage more right. So how do you see this uh, uh, model uh, concept of retained earnings fits into the the new age business model, which is typically tend to have a very shorter uh, lifespan, say five to ten years, because company might uh, might not have a competitive advantage to. Uh, Retain is earning beyond uh, maybe a 10 years because of nature of the business model. Right. And my second question is um, how do we uh, calculate this intrinsic value for capital light businesses? Um, maybe if you have any references um, on this probably that would uh, really help. And also more importantly, how do you see this retained earnings uh, uh, fits into this um, capital light businesses? Because the outcome, the investments which they are making these companies, the outcome could be exponentially uh, scale as well. Uh, for example, uh, some businesses where they're trying to venture out some new innovative idea of expanding their business might uh, uh, give uh, exponential uh, returns as well in the future. So how do you see this uh, aspect is getting uh, fitted into the earning, uh, the retained earnings? Curve? Thank you. Uh, Right. Exactly. So, uh, so, so these, these are all
0: uh, wonderful questions. Um, Well, uh, so for these new age businesses, that was the first question. Um, If you believe that um, these new age businesses have uh, only a five to 10 year runway to produce earnings, because after that the earnings are very uncertain or uh, they don't have competitive advantages, the returns will come down and and so on because of competition. Then you have to take what what earnings you can get in these five to 10 years, right? Um, because after that, uh, the earnings may, may be there or they may not be there. And uh, so if you want to calculate the intrinsic value of these companies conservatively, you cannot assume any earnings after 10 years, or you can only assume a very small amount of earnings after 10 years. So whatever earnings you can get in the next 10 years, uh, those are the only earnings you can use for your intrinsic value. Now the question is, how much of these earnings are these companies actually returning uh, back to owners? Um, Now it, it turns out that for many new businesses, they typically don't like to distribute any part of their earnings because uh, every single dollar of earnings that they get, uh, they want to reinvest it back into themselves uh, to try and grow the business. Uh, so if you if you take uh, you know m- most companies that were started in the last five years or something like that that or that went public in the last five years, there are very few of those companies. Uh, that are actually uh, distributing any meaningful amount of uh, dividends so if you look at the payout ratio of these companies what percentage of their earnings uh, they are giving out as dividends uh, the payout ratio tends to be very low Uh, so you you don't get a whole lot in dividends and it's true that part of these earnings uh, which, which the, the 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 bulk of these earnings which which are not being distributed as dividends are being retained by the company and reinvested uh, into their own operations to to do r and d or uh, to do some marketing to acquire new customers and and so on that's what new age businesses generally look like uh, some software business subscription business things like that they, they spend enormous amounts of money on R&D and to uh, develop new features, new products, uh, attract new customers, acquire new customers, advertise on Google and Facebook and all that. Um, so they, they try to do all these things. And some businesses, of course, will be successful and they will get, uh, uh, they will get traction in the marketplace. And over a period of time, they may be able to uh, capture a corner of the market uh, in a defensible way and then once they they do that they may return cash to uh they may start returning a portion of their earnings uh, a, a bigger portion of their earnings to to shareholders but for that you have to believe that uh, the business has long-term competitive advantages because if the business does not have these advantages um it will be in a constant fight against competition and constant fight against competition means constantly burning capital uh, so they have to keep spending capital uh, just to retain existing customers, prevent churn, um, uh, just to acquire uh, new customers who have uh, uh, to to replace the customers who have already churned and things like that. If, if they don't have a competitive advantage, uh, it means they will have to spend lots of capital uh, on just these types of maintenance activities in the future and every one dollar of capital that is spent on these maintenance activities is one dollar of capital that cannot be distributed to the owners so if you believe that these businesses don't have long-term competitive advantages and if you believe uh and, and if you know that these businesses are not really distributing a big part of their earnings today then uh it may not make much sense for you to buy uh the stock of these companies because uh, you you may buy a stock for hundred dollars and then uh, it may be paying a one dollar dividend today. But if you believe that uh, that dividend is safe only for ten years and after that anything could happen to the company, then basically you're spending hundred dollars and you're getting back ten dollars um, uh, uh, certainly over the next ten years. But after that you don't know what's going to happen. And th- this kind of trade-off, uh, it's it's not it doesn't sound like a good investment it it may be a good speculative bet i mean you, you might be investing in something that might turn out to be really big and and so on uh, but that is speculation at, at this point you, you don't know which of these companies will be the winners and and so on so uh, it it's uh, not not really uh, if if you if you buy a stock for 100 dollars with the expectation of getting back 10 dollars uh, that is really gambling uh, that's that's not investing uh, so so that that is the uh, f- first question. Uh, the second question is, uh, what do you do about capital-like businesses? See, this this is a lovely question. Um, so if you have a capital-like business, then by definition, uh, for $1 of earnings that the business produces, it doesn't require a whole lot of capital, right? Um, so the question is, if the business makes a lot of money uh, every year, what is it going to do with all this money? It cannot reinvest this money back into itself because it's it's a capital light business. It cannot take that much capital and reinvest it at a high rate of return. So Buffett, when he acquired uh, capital light businesses, like C Candies, for example, is a very capital-like business. Um, he uh, had this lovely idea of taking out all the earnings that C Candies does not need for reinvesting. So C Candies uh it it may earn a certain amount of money say um, when, when buffett acquired it uh, I, I i believe uh, it was earning uh, some, something of the order of a few few million dollars so uh, let's let, let's say at, at some point C Candice was earning uh, 100 million dollars per year after, after buffett acquired it and expanded it and so on it was earning 100 million per year at at, at some point now uh it wasn't investing all this hundred million back into itself. Maybe it was investing ten million back into itself uh, for for growth and uh, for uh, expansion and things like that. So what Buffett did was he simply took out the other ninety million and invested it somewhere else uh, in um, uh, to 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 buy other companies, to buy Coca Cola shares or whatever. Um, so if you have a capital light business, it's very very important. Uh, to consider what you're going to do with all the cash that will be thrown out by this business. Because this cash cannot be reinvested back into the business itself. You have to have some other way to invest this cash if you can take it out. Now, a lot of capital light businesses, they are capital light and they also don't give out this cash. So they may earn uh, billions of dollars uh, each year. So some of these uh, uh, tech businesses like, like Google, for example, uh, Google is what most people consider to be a capital light business. Uh, the average American business probably requires uh, something like $6 or $7 of capital to earn one, $1 of earnings. And in Google's case, it's much lower. Google may, may be able to generate $1 of earnings with just uh, 2 or $3 of capital. Now, uh, unfortunately, what Google is doing is uh, it's not taking this $1 of earnings and distributing it to owners it is piling up this $1 uh, on its balance sheet. Um, so so it's piling up billions of dollars each year on its balance sheet. And it's not distributing this cash to owners. So you can't really take this cash and invest it elsewhere. So um, it, it is getting into, um, it, it is making some sensible acquisitions. Uh, like for example, YouTube turned out to be a phenomenal uh, acquisition that it made. So some, something like that may be in the future of the company. Uh, and it is becoming more and more uh, uh, capital heavy, actually. The, the capital lightness of Google is actually decreasing over time. So some of their future initiatives, they require more capital than uh, some of their past initiatives. So uh, they are spending on that sort of thing. But then again, uh, with, when you have a capital light business, you, you really... Uh, if you're able to take the cash out of the business and put it somewhere else at a higher rate of return that's great and that's what buffett did for many years with these candies and so on uh, but if you can't take out the cash out of the business like for example if you're a google shareholder you're not going to be getting any dividends uh, that that is kind of a dicey problem to have because it now depends on you you have to trust the management of google to do something sensible with all this cash if you cannot trust them to make the right acquisitions or you cannot trust them to um, invest it in the right way, then uh, you cannot basically invest in, in Google because uh,
4: you, uh, you, you you will,
0: uh, if you calculate the expected value of your um, uh, earnings, uh, it may be much higher than the share price uh, today. If you calculate the expected value of all the future dividends. Uh, so, so um you, you, you sort of uh, have to make this determination for yourself. Can you trust the management to do the right thing uh, with the cash that it has on hand?
2: Uh, th- does that make sense? Yeah, great insight. So uh, thanks, thank you. As you should. Sure. Uh,
0: so the next question uh, comes from Shashi.
4: Hi, Tenke. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Hi. Right. Uh, so uh, I, just wanna, uh, I just want to I just want to ask um, a little bit about companies that uh, have real growth, but they destroy shareholder value while growing. Uh, meaning, meaning they have uh, they have a very high uh, cost of capital, and they are uh, retained, reinvested uh, capital earns much less while uh, while the earnings are growing. So can you explain a little bit on that? And uh, also what's the importance you give uh, in a company to understand their cost of capital uh, when you're uh, analyzing? Uh, especially uh, recently I've been having, uh, I mean, I've had some, uh, companies uh, come into, like cannabis companies, uh, you know, they have good return on capital, but due to the regulatory issues, their cost of capital is very high. So I believe that's the reason they are trading uh, in very low PE. So, what are your thoughts on that? Thank you. Uh, right, absolutely.
0: Uh, so, co- cost of capital uh, is uh, kind of an important concept. Uh, to To understand but um, so so the, the, there are lots of ways to um, slice and dice the numbers here and some some ways may be more valid than others um, so when when you look at cost of capital uh, it's essentially the same as uh, the the discount rate that you're going to use to discount the the future cash flows of the company. So when when people say weighted average cost of capital in a a DCF setting or something like that, what they mean essentially is what is the discount rate that they are going to use to discount the future cash flows of the company? Um, Now, that that is one sort of interpretation of this concept called cost of capital, just the discount rate you use in the DCF. Uh, The second sort of interpretation is uh, how much does it actually? Uh, how much does capital cost the company, and how much uh, can it earn on that capital? So, um, the the simplest way to see this is uh, b- through a company that is borrowing money. So let's say you can borrow money at three percent interest uh, per year, and then you can invest that money at uh, say ten percent return. So um, then. Your, your cost of capital is basically 3% and uh, your return is 10%. And this is a good place to be because uh, now, now your cost of capital is uh, uh, lower than the return that you're able to get on that capital. But the problem with that uh, is businesses don't work just on debt capital. So businesses have various kinds of capital that they use. If you take any business, uh, it's going to have three main kinds of capital. So the first kind of capital is debt, uh, both short-term debt and long-term debt. And on this debt, the business is going to pay some interest. And uh, if you go and calculate the interest rate that the business is able to borrow money at, uh, that is the business's uh, uh, sort of cost of the debt capital alone. Uh, The second kind of capital that a business has is equity capital, which is the capital uh, that has been put into it by its owners. Um, Now, of course, part of that equity capital may have been invested into the business at the time it was formed by the owners. uh, So they put in some of their own money to start the business. Uh, That that is part of equity capital. But the other part of equity capital is all the earnings uh, of the business that it has not distributed to owners. So if, if a business earns $100 and it distributes only 20 of it to the owners and retains the remaining 80 then that AT also becomes part of the equity capital of the business. So over a period of time, businesses that have a large amount of earnings and that have retained a large amount of earnings in their own operations, they have a substantial amount of equity capital as well. Uh, Now, how do you calculate the cost of this equity capital? Um, uh, that is a very good question. And there are, uh, lots of approaches and, uh, lots of interpretations attached to the, the cost of equity capital. Um, I am not really, uh, overly fond of, uh, many of these approaches because I think this whole idea of uh, cost of equity capital, it, it's kind of a theoretical construct. And, um, I, I would like to. Consider the cost of equity capital as just something like an opportunity cost. So if I have $100 of equity invested into a company and uh, I can earn 10% on that capital elsewhere, um, whereas uh, in this business, that $100 that I have is earning 12%, then I'm well off because uh, I can't do much with that $100 elsewhere. I can can only earn $10 on it, whereas this company is earning $12 for me with that equity capital. So uh, as an owner, I'm better off. Uh, But if the business is earning only $8 and I can go and earn $10 elsewhere, uh, then I actually should not have my equity capital invested in this business uh, because I can earn more with that same capital elsewhere. Uh, so then the business is actually destroying value for me uh, because it's uh, it's lowering my, my net worth over a period of time. If I could just take my capital out of this business and put it somewhere else, I may be much better off. Uh, so so that's the concept here. Uh, the third kind of capital that uh, businesses have is uh, float capital. So a lot of people think that only insurance companies have float. Uh, that, that is not true. Lots of other companies also have float. So, for example, Starbucks has an enormous amount of float. Why? Because when I go to Starbucks, I have this uh, rewards card and I top up this rewards card uh, uh, with, with money when I go to Starbucks. And uh, at any given time, I probably have uh, something of the order of, uh, you know, $100 or something like that on my card. And that $100 is capital that I have given to Starbucks. And they're not paying me an interest or anything like that on the capital. Well, from from time to time, they may give me a free coffee or something like that, but that's not really interest. And so this $100 is kind of like an interest-free loan that Starbucks has got from me. And um, just like me, there are uh, millions of people who are Starbucks Rewards members. And so Starbucks has billions of dollars of capital that it has essentially uh, got from its customers. uh, prepaid revenue from its customers, uh, which is loaded onto gift cards and uh, rewards cards and things like that. So uh, that is an enormous source of capital for Starbucks. Um, Similarly, there are are other businesses that owe their suppliers a lot of money. At any given time, uh, if a business owes its suppliers $1 billion, say, then that $1 billion is essentially an interest-free loan that, uh, kind of remains with the company for as long as it's doing business, right? So that, that $1 billion, uh, which the company is always owing its suppliers, that $1 billion is float capital for, for the company. So similarly, um, so so companies can get this kind of float capital by owing money to suppliers, by owing money to employees, by owing money to the government, deferred taxes, by owing uh, services to customers, which is uh, prepaid revenue. So all these are sources of uh, uh, float capital. So that's the third kind of capital for uh, for the company. So there's debt capital, there's equity capital, and there's float capital. Now, w- what exactly is the cost of this float capital? Uh, I would say in, in economic terms, the, the cost of the float is uh, is close to zero. Because uh, that there, there is no the, the company is able to get this capital. It's essentially interest free. Of course, um, with, with the Starbucks uh, gift card example, it may not be completely interest free because they have to give me free coffee from time to time. So, so it, it, that free coffee has a cost to Starbucks, but uh, it, it's not a lot. And uh, so, um, it, th- this kind of float capital is usually zero cost. So now you have a company it's got three different kinds of capital each kind of capital sort of has a different cost associated with it and that's why you have to do this kind of weighted average cost of capital so you have to look at each uh, capital source in the company and then figure out what its cost is and then you have to weight it uh, by by the uh, if a company has 1 billion dollars of debt capital and 2 billion dollars of equity And the cost of equity is uh, 8% and the cost of uh, debt is uh, 4%. You have to weight this 8% by the 2 billion and the 4% by the 1 billion. And then you have to add up uh, the cost and that will give you the true cost of capital. So that that is one common way these weighted average cost of capital calculations are are done. Um, But this this whole thing, um, there's a real danger of... uh, just uh, getting into all kinds of uh, esoteric math here, that, that doesn't give you a whole lot of insight into the company. I think the broad um, thing to consider is uh, forget about where all this capital is coming from. There, there's debt capital and there's equity capital and there's float capital. So there, there's all this capital is coming uh, from various sources. Now, what is the company doing with all this capital? Is it able to invest it into some... Uh, source of uh, earnings where it is able to earn a reasonable return on this capital. So uh, if if the company is able to earn those returns on capital, um, then uh, that that company may may, may be a high-quality company. But uh, if it's not able to earn high returns on, on the capital, uh, then um, you should probably stay away from it uh, even if uh, the, the, the cost of capital is is low. Uh, so if a company is able to earn, say, uh, 5% on capital, but its cost of capital is, is 2%, so it's able to borrow money at 2%, but earn 5%. Now, uh, you can say that, okay, uh, it's adding value because uh, it's earning 5%, but the cost of capital is only 2%, so its value is increasing over time. Uh, but the problem is, how long will this 2% remain 2%? And... what what if uh, interest rates rise uh, and uh, it's no longer, the company is no longer able to borrow money at 2%. What if uh, uh, the company is able to borrow money only at 4% next year onwards? Um, Then will this 5% increase uh, or this 5% return of the company, will will that increase to 8% or something like that? Or will it remain at 5%? So I like to uh, invest in companies that are earning such high returns on their capital uh, that, I don't have to really worry too much uh, about whether the cost of capital is uh, you know, 8% or 9% or whatever. Um, it, it, it's just uh, uh, if the company is earning 25% on capital, I don't have to worry about whether the cost of capital is 8% or 9% or whether it has to be calculated using this method or that method or how it has to be weighted. I, I don't have to worry about any of these things because the return on capital is just so much higher than any reasonable estimate of the cost of capital. So I, I like to invest in companies like that. Um, and as for the discount rate interpretation of the cost of capital, uh, wh- what is the discount rate that you have to use in a DCF? Uh, I like to simply use um, uh, the the opportunity cost. So if I if I know if if I think that I have an investment where I can earn ten percent on uh, uh, where I can earn ten percent per year. So, for example, for me, uh, that is something uh, like Berkshire. Uh, So, this uh, position in our portfolio. And uh, I I believe that uh, um, at at current prices, uh, there's a reasonable chance of earning 10% per year uh, uh, in in the long term uh, by investing in Berkshire. So, if I want to uh, look at some other company, some, some company that is not Berkshire, and i want to do a dcf for it uh, what what is the discount rate that i should use for the dcf i will use 10% uh, simply because that that is my uh, hurdle so if, if i calculate uh, uh, the dcf value using 10% as my discount rate then i can sort of figure out uh, what the company is worth today and if the shares are trading in the market at less than that uh, value that i get then i know that there is a reasonable chance that if i invest in those shares today i will get more than 10% return uh, which is, which is better than what return i can get from berkshire which which i think is 10% right uh, so in this case what i'm saying is i'm just using my weighted average cost of capital i'm just using 10% because that's what uh, i have this other opportunity berkshire which is giving which i think will give me 10% so i'm using that as the discount rate for the cash flows of this other company, even though uh, 10% has nothing to do with the cost at which this company is able to borrow money or anything like that. This company may be able to borrow money at 2%, but I'm still using 10% to discount its uh, cash flows simply because um, I have an alternative in Berkshire which gives me 10%. So that is the other interpretation of the uh, uh, weighted average cost of capital. Uh, so the, does, does that answer the question,
4: Shashi? Yes, of course. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Sure. Uh,
0: so, so the next next question uh, is again from Casey.
1: Yeah. Hi. Um, I have a couple of follow-up questions on what you discussed with Shashi and with Raj. So sure. first off, retained earnings has no cost of capital, right?
0: Um, not Exactly, because you could take the retained earnings and invest them somewhere else, and you may be able to get a, say, 10% return on the retained earnings. Whereas if you invested in this particular company, if you make less than that 10%, if this company is able to reinvest uh, those retained earnings only at 5%, then the company is actually destroying value for you, right? Yeah, well,
1: so like if a, if a company has a hundred million in cash uh, on their balance sheet from all of their retained earnings over the years um, and then they, they decide they want to invest in a new, new manufacturing facility to generate a new product line. Uh, right. the, the, the example you gave earlier was 2% cost of capital. They make 5%, they make, you know, 3%. So, so I'm trying to understand well, how is there a cost of capital? If they have a hundred million from all of their retained earnings over the years, to be, to to start that new manufacturing facility they don't have to take on debt they don't have to raise equity they just use their retained earnings sitting on their balance sheet to 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 build this new manufacturing facility so there's no cost right. of capital
0: well uh, so i think uh, there is a sort of uh, a
1: confusion in
0: terminology here so uh, cost of capital is uh, something like a uh, concept in uh, valuation, in security analysis, cost of capital is not really a cost that a company records on its income statement. So, when when the company uses its hundred million of retained earnings to go and open a new factory, uh, it does not have to pay any interest. You will not see any line item in the income statement saying, "Here, uh, this is a cost that I have incurred uh, by by because I I, I use this hundred million or whatever." So, so cost of capital. Uh, is not exactly uh, cost that is deducted on the income statement of the company. Cost of capital is, uh, if, if you think about it from a from a DCF uh, standpoint, if if this uh, 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 it, it's like the rate at which you are going to discount the future cash flows of the company. So uh, the the term cost of capital might be a little misleading. But just replace cost of capital by discount rate, and uh, that may help you understand the concept better. So if, uh, if, if a company is going to give you, say, $10, $10 million every year from now uh, uh, up to uh, eternity, now, how much value will you place on, on this stream of $10 million per year cash flows? Now, you, you're going to take these $10 million per year, and you're going to discount uh, them at some rate, right? The, whatever discount rate you use to discount that, that is called cost of capital in okay. valuation circles.
1: Okay, thank you. And then when you were talking with uh, Raj about Kraft Heinz, uh, you, you talked about the difference between legacy capital and uh, uh, new capital. And in your example, you said Kraft Heinz invested uh, $7 billion. And they made six billion on the seven billion. So, legacy capital of seven billion to make six billion each year. So, in this right. example, the return on invested capital, return on invested legacy capital, would be eighty five percent. Is it? Am I calculating that correct? Six divided uh, by seven.
0: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, except that uh, that that's a pre tax figure. So, um, pre tax, it's uh, eighty eighty five percent or whatever it is. Uh, okay. Eighty five point seven percent.
1: Yeah. So, if if a business is fully valued, let's say that that there's an objective intrinsic value on in a company. If the business is fully valued, long after the ROIC has been established, um, it's 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 somewhat irrelevant to new investors that are considering investing in the company because it would be more, far more compelling for us to look at the ROIC going forward, right? Well, so when you say fully valued, um,
0: the, the fully valued means the market price is equal to the intrinsic value of the company, right? That's what fully valued means. Now, uh, the intrinsic value uh, is itself calculated uh, as the present value of future cash flows at a particular discount rate, right? Mm -hmm. Now, those future cash flows uh, have to be estimated by somebody. And so now, if you take ROIIC, now, Those future cash flows, uh, they should already account for ROIIC, right? Whatever future capital is going to be invested by the company uh, at whatever future return it's able to earn on that future capital, that all is part of the future cash flows. And so uh, the definition of fully valued itself has to depend in some way on ROIIC. It, does that make sense
1: uh, I think so I, I guess I'm just trying to say um, that obviously the 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 uh, beginning investors who invested far before six billion was established as their ROIC on the seven billion that's right um, that after that it's all been established that they had this great ROIC on the seven billion that going forward that's not as much as relevant than the ROIIC because the 6 billion a year in earnings pre-tax has been established and going forward, it won't be nearly, nearly even close to that. So if we're expecting that future cash, cash streams coming in, in the future, um, we should, we should much be more interested in the ROIIC than the ROIIC. Oh,
0: that, that, that's correct. To to calculate the intrinsic value of craft hands, uh, you will have to sort of figure out how much more capital craft uh, hands is going to, invest into itself in the future, and what it will earn on that capital. And you should not use 86% uh, or 85% uh, as the rate that you will earn on that capital, because you're not going to be earning anything close to that. Uh, So that's what Buffett said. So uh, Buffett said, okay, so uh, the business makes 86% uh, on its capital, uh, 6 billion um, uh, on 7 billion. But the owner of the business may not make 86% return uh, because the owner of the business, well, there are two things. One is the owner of the business is not buying the business at 7 billion. So the business that is uh, earning 6 billion on 7 billion of capital, you can't buy it for 7 billion. Nobody will sell you this business for 7 billion. Right. Uh, You have to buy the business for much higher and Buffett bought the business for something like 100 billion. Right. Uh, So now uh, Buffett spent 100 billion to acquire a business that's got seven billion of capital and earns six billion per year. Now, if that business returns six billion back to Buffett every year and it doesn't reinvest those earnings at all, it returns six billion to Buffett every year. Uh, then Buffett's return is only six percent, right. not eighty-six percent, because uh, he paid hundred billion for it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when Buffett bought it. Uh, he was expecting the business to reinvest uh something back into the business right um and earn a return on it, but maybe not as high as eighty six percent so uh if it earned, say a twenty percent return on right. all incremental capital that is invested into it uh I think buffett buffett would be happy with with that outcome so uh so buffett 's return sort of depends on the price that he paid for it the earnings on legacy capital and the future ROIIC on incremental capital that will be invested into the business. So all these things play play a role.
1: Okay, understood. Thank you for explaining.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, so uh, the, um, the next caller is uh, again Shashi.
4: Hi, Uh, Tenkai. So- Long uh, time. Another another quick one. (laughs) Uh, uh, So just want to know when you are evaluating uh, return on invested capital, are you mainly focused on uh, uh, earnings or do you consider uh, cash ROIC? Because earnings can be manipulated. So just want to get your feedback. Thank you.
0: uh, Wait, earnings can be manipulated?
4: No, I mean, earnings, uh, you know, it's not the actual earnings, right? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, cash I'm, I'm flow is different. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah. earnings can be manipulated uh, in, in a lot of <laughs> ways. Uh, so, yeah.
4: Uh,
0: yeah, so I like to look at this concept called, uh, I like to look at multiple concepts. So one of it is uh, the reported earnings. I, I usually like to start from there. And I try to see, okay, how much of these reported earnings is actually, actually, um, uh, Uh, money that can be taken out by the owners each year and how much of this reported earnings is just uh, an artifact of the way the reporting is done. Uh, So, yes, uh, I I look at cash flows, uh, but then with with cash flows, you have, again, two two concepts. There's the operating cash flow and then there's the free cash flow. And if the company is uh, constantly uh, reinvesting back into its own operations, then it may not have much in the way of free cash flow. But it may still have a lot of operating cash flow. So when I uh, sort of analyze a business, I have to uh, consider uh, what exactly uh, is this a mature business uh, where uh, almost all the earnings uh, can be realized as free cash flow? Or uh, is this a business where uh, none of the earnings can be realized as free cash flow and all of it has to be reinvested back into the company to grow the company? Um, or something in between. So yes, uh, it's it's vitally important uh, to not just rely on reported earnings, but to look at not just uh, uh, to to look at how much cash can actually be taken out by the owner of a business of each year. And uh, Buffett has this concept called owner earnings, which is exactly this. Uh, suppose you have this business and you don't want to grow it. You just want to keep the earnings of the business where it is. Uh, Then you don't have to reinvest for growth. You only have to reinvest the minimum amount uh, that is needed to maintain these earnings. So if you take the earnings of this business uh, and uh, out of the earnings, you you subtract whatever is required to just maintain those earnings going forward. Of course, you, you also have to add Add in depreciation and things like that because uh, uh, you know you have to add the non-cash costs of the business, but then you have to subtract the cash that's required to maintain these earnings. If you just calculate that, how much uh, how much money can you take out of the business each year? If you're not interested in growing the business, you're not investing for future growth. You're taking out every possible dollar that you can today. Uh, wh- what is that figure? How uh, how much can you take out? And Um, that uh, is called owner earnings. And that that is also something to consider. So owner earnings is not the same as free cash flow. It's not the same as operating cash flow. It's not the same as reported earnings. So there are all these different concepts. And I I try to look at all of them uh, when trying to calculate my return on capital. So ultimately, the goal is to try and um, form an opinion about the future cash flows of this business. And sometimes the future cash flows uh, require uh, you to assume a lot of growth. And uh, if uh, you have to assume growth in the company, you also have to look at how much capital that growth requires and where that capital is going to come from. So all these concepts um, sort of have to be used uh, in conjunction with each other to try and estimate future cash flows and future cash flows will be a large driver. Of uh, future returns, if you buy this stock.
1: Thank uh, you. Thanks. Sure,
4: sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, then the next caller is uh, Raj, and uh, let's make Raj uh, the the last caller uh, because we are we are at uh, an hour and uh, thirty minutes now
3: yeah I'll, I'll make this question short i think you already answered a part of my question so what i'm what my on on the practical side on to use this concept i mean this uh, uh, great knowledge that you're sharing uh, in in evaluating companies uh, i think some of the metrics that we discuss is roic roic uh, retained earnings and owner earnings so are there any other metrics uh, that uh, that we i mean we have to look for like so 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 basically my question is that i don't think in the annual report they will no company would uh, um, specifically mention what is the retained earnings i mean uh, and then what kind of earnings are they actually reinvesting right so that that's actually a figure that one has to deduce based on all these uh, factors right so my question is are there any other metrics that we have to look for which can uh, get us to that that uh, desired you know um, conclusion as to how much retained earnings that the company uh, has reinvested uh, to to increase the interest. Uh, Right, absolutely.
0: So you can get a sense of how much capital uh, is required by the company by going through its balance sheet. So its balance sheet will state, okay, how much cash it has, what what are the accounts receivable, how much inventory the company has, what are the fixed assets, uh, all these things. And uh, so you can get a sense of uh, what, w- what is the capital invested in and uh, you know wh- what are all the various uh, amounts of capital that are required by the company and where this capital is required, right? Uh, so if you take last year's balance sheet and compare it to this year's balance sheet, and if you see the, say the fixed assets line item, last year it was $1 billion, this year it's $1.2 billion, say. Uh, then, you can assume that uh, an extra 200 million dollars has been added to uh, fixed assets uh, now of course if they also claimed 100 million in uh, depreciation uh, then uh, they have basically added 300 million to the uh, to the fixed assets because um, 1, 1 billion minus 100 million of depreciation takes you to 900 million And then another three uh, hundred million added to the nine hundred million would take you to one point two billion. So that's why the fixed assets have gone from one billion to one point two billion. So this three hundred million dollars that has been invested into uh, improving the, uh, into increasing the fixed assets, you can think of that as uh, a portion of the earnings that uh, the company has reinvested back into itself, right? Because it's invested 300 million uh, uh, back into itself just by looking at the two balance sheets one balance sheet from last year and one balance sheet from this year you can sort of see how much new capital has been invested by the company the other thing you can do is you can just take the reported earnings of the company uh, and see how much they gave out in dividends and what did they do with the rest so uh, if if they, if a company earned 1 billion and uh, it gave out 500 million in dividends And uh, the other 500 million, if it's just sitting as cash on the balance sheet, then you can conclude that, okay, the company has retained 500 million, but has not done anything with it. Uh, So by reading the financial statements, you can actually get a clue about uh, not just the total amount of retained earnings, but also where this retained earnings has gone into. Has it gone to increasing inventory or has it gone to increasing fixed assets? Things like that. You can get these clues. Uh, as for other metrics that I look at, um, uh, you know, we, we mentioned ROIC and ROIIC. Um, I also like to look at cash flows. Uh, I also look at, uh, like to look at capital efficiency. So uh, inventory turnover and things like that. So if the company is turning over inventory, uh, say, uh, so the, the, the way most people, uh, so if a company uh, has $1 billion in inventory, and uh, the, the cost of goods sold is, uh, say, say $2, $2 billion. That means it's turning its inventory twice per year, right? Um, so cost of goods sold is $2 billion, inventory is $1 billion, uh, average inventory. So uh, the, the inventory turnover is, it's turning its inventory twice per year. Now, a lot of people, uh, they calculate inventory turnover uh, by using revenues instead of cost of goods sold. Um, but I, I like to use cost of goods sold because that is more uh, comparable to inventory. Uh, so so uh, if I find that, uh, say, revenues of the company or uh, cost of goods sold of the company has increased by 10%, um, but, but uh, inventory has increased only by 8%, then that is a sign that uh, the company is becoming more capital efficient because um, uh, inventory turnover has has actually increased a little bit right uh but on the other hand if cost of goods sold is uh, increased by 10 percent but inventory has increased by 25 percent uh, then uh it's clear that the company has acquired a lot more inventory and now is it because uh it's not able to sell the inventory uh, the products that it has and now uh in the next year it's going to have to discount those products or something like that Or is it just because the company has now built up, uh, uh, has a lot of demand for its products and it's now building up inventory in anticipation of satisfying all this demand? Uh, So both are possible. So more than relying on just a metric like inventory turnover, it's also important to sort of understand why these metrics have changed and what has driven the change in metrics because uh, the same increase in inventory turnover can be a good thing. Can, it can mean that the company is becoming more efficient or uh, it, it can be a bad thing as well. Um, it, it, it can mean that uh, the company is not going to sell too much uh, in the next, uh, next year or it's uh, anticipating that it won't be able to sell enough next year or something like that. So it, it could mean a good thing or a bad thing. So uh, you, you sort of have to uh, have some idea about the business before applying these metrics. Does that make sense?
3: Absolutely. Thanks a lot.
0: Okay. Uh, so uh, thank you all very much for showing up um, and listening to this call patiently. I enjoyed it a lot. I hope you gained something useful out of it as well. And um, uh, if, if, uh, if if you think you learned something on this call, if you think it might be useful to others, please uh, share this on social media or with your friends get them to attend as well. It's uh, completely free and we are just trying to help each other become better investors over time by doing these uh, weekly Sunday things. Uh, The more people who attend and the more people who ask questions and so on, the better the learning outcomes for all of us. Um, So again, thank you all very much for showing up and see you next week.